the week in doubt, religious news stories from a skeptical perspective, random musings on everything from pop culture to politics, and even audio documentaries on weird and interesting topics like Krampus and the history of the holidays. The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, the host of The Week in Doubt, and this is episode 327. So before I start, some long overdue Facebook shoutouts. As I was saying recently, the number of likes on the Facebook page pretty much doubled overnight, and it's still rising. Uh, thanks to everyone who liked the page, it really means a lot. For the sake of brevity, I'll just read the 10 most recent for now. I guess that makes more sense than attempting to read 230 some odd names, and then maybe I'll continue to read 10 a week until we're all caught up. Yeah, that makes sense, I think, so here we go. So we have Jared Vaith, I think that's it, Clarence Jones, Ken Brewer, Heather Draper, Jake Marr, Kenny Romano, Brian Green, Leroy Norville, Oliva, not Olivia, but uh, Oliva maybe, uh, Kelber, sorry if I'm butchering your name, Matthew Malloy, why does that one sound so familiar, and Mick Iver. Uh, thanks guys, uh, greatly appreciated, I'll be sure to read 10 more next time. Okay, any more house cleaning to take care of? Oh yeah, thanks to friend and listener, Freethinker215, for increasing his monthly Patreon pledge. I believe he increased it to $3.33, or 333, which is half of 666, always a fun number. And speaking of Patreon, I recorded a bonus episode the other day, and I'm hoping to release it very soon, most likely before the weekend's out. In it, I talk about antidepressants and how I recently saw a deer get hit by a bus on the highway. Really cherry stuff. Uh, I hope you Patreon supporters enjoy it nevertheless. It's meant to be a reward, not a punishment, I swear. And actually, I think I may have just lost a Patreon supporter. Uh, it went down from 15 to 14 uh, patrons. So if anyone wants to step in and fill the gap, this would probably be the time. Just saying. Okay, what else? Oh yeah, this is kind of a trivial thing, relatively speaking, but I, uh, I felt kind of bad for making fun of Alan Combs in the last episode, so I played an old Hannity and Combs clip last week that featured Christopher Hitchens, and I think I described Alan Combs as looking like a cross between Ichabod Crane and the Nazi who gets his face melted in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I was watching the YouTube version for quality control, and it was even worse because I have a photo of him right up there on the screen while I'm bagging on his looks, and it just seemed uh, harsh in retrospect. I was like, geez, what's wrong with me, man? Here I am ripping into this dead guy. It's funny, though. I remember back in the day that people on the left, myself being a left-leaning person, would actually sometimes make the argument that Combs was uh, kind of Fox News' token liberal, and they pick this awkward-looking milquetoast guy, the argument or accusation being that they probably intentionally chose an unappealing person to represent the left, Fox, of course, being uh, a heavily right-leaning quote-unquote news outlet. I don't know if there's any merit to that, but I remember hearing that complaint being thrown around a few times. Uh, poor Combs. I was about to make a wise-ass decomposition joke about how at least he got looking like a skeleton out of the way while he was still alive. 
What the hell is wrong with me? This, uh, I swear, was actually supposed to be a mea culpa. I usually do my best to not, uh, you know, make fun of people, uh, at least their looks or whatever. Uh, I think I'm just in a dark, sardonic mood or something. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it has to do with playing around with my antidepressant levels. <laughs> I shouldn't blame it on that. Uh, but what are you going to do? Move it on. And no, I'm not drinking alcohol at the moment. It's uh, 3 in the afternoon as I'm recording this. And that's the sound of 100% natural cherry juice on the rocks. But anyway, I guess I'll talk about YouTube next. So it looks like I've run afoul of their policies yet again. In a sense, it's actually not that big a deal. Um, I think my use of the material in question legitimately qualifies as fair use. I just don't care enough to, uh, to fight it. I'm still just happy I got them to turn monetization back on for me after the last debacle. So this time, I think it was about a week ago, I was notified that I had received a strike on my channel. And uh, just like baseball, three strikes are out <laughs> for the most part, I think. And um, usually, you know, if there's a content match or a copyright claim, it's usually not a big deal. You don't have to worry about getting in trouble. The worst that will happen is maybe your video will be demonetized and the person who's making the copyright claim gets to monetize your video. And sometimes this can seem rather unfair. For instance, I think one time I, I did a video debunking flat earth claims or whatever. And there was a part where I was talking about the science of the moon or whatever. And I used, uh, it was probably like a minute long. I, I think it wasn't even a movie clip. It was just a GIF or a GIF, whatever you call it. This little low quality loop I grabbed off of Google of one of the characters from Dragon Ball Z, Gohan, I think, here I am nerding out, turning into a giant ape while looking at the moon. And it was kind of a stupid joke, but, you know, kind of corny, but it tied into what I was talking about. And so this was probably at least a 15-minute video, and this was probably like a minute long or under clip. And Toei Animation or Bandai, whatever it is, whoever owns... Um, the copyright to Dragon Ball Z and its characters, made a copyright claim. I didn't get in any trouble, but to this day, not that I think that video ever made really any money, but if it has been making any money, they're the ones to get it. They got the right to claim monetization on that video. And this is a scenario that happens to a lot of content creators, unfortunately. You know, you pour a lot of time and effort into creating what is, for the most part, an original work, showcasing your own sincere thoughts on a subject, a topic, maybe it's a reaction video or whatever, and maybe to illustrate your point, you add, uh, you know, a quick little clip, or if it's a reaction video, you're showing what the person on the other side of the argument originally said, so people can get a better sense of what you're arguing against, you know? And then the person who owns that small amount of copyrighted material that's appearing in your video ends up being the one making money off of your video, even though it's 95% original content or whatever. And I know for some people, and this argument has merit, it might be like a 
world's smallest violin moment where, hey, don't try to get me to feel sorry for you. You're using someone else's material, no matter how small of an amount it is, uh, without permission or whatever, you know? And there's definitely merit to that argument. And if even if that is your stance, I think you still have to ask yourself whether the punishment or the penalty is fair or commensurate with the original or the initial transgression. I mean, is is it fair? Even if someone uses a small bit of copyrighted content without permission, is it still fair if the majority of the video, let's say it's a 15 or 25 minute long video and the copyrighted bit is only a minute long or whatever, does it make any sense? Does it strike you as fair at all that the person who owns that small fraction of copyright content should be able to solely monetize the video? If you wanted to maybe allow the content creator to continue monetizing the video, but a justifiable portion of the monetization goes to the injured party, the person who owns the copyrighted content, that would be fine. Or if you want to demonetize the video altogether, no one gets any money off of it, that would probably be fair too. Or even um, if the injured party wants the video completely taken down, that might be fair as well. And if you want, you know, the content creator can re-upload the video uh, in an altered form where they remove the uh, the infringing bit of content. But fully rewarding monetization to the other party, it makes me think of like some feudal lord riding by, grabbing a peasant by the ankles and shaking all the spare change out of his pockets. It just seems like big companies preying on the little guy. Or, you know, maybe it can also serve as a morally questionable way for people to seek revenge on their critics. Instead of rationally responding to your interlocutor's uh, criticisms, just file a copyright claim instead. And who knows, uh, maybe you'll end up making money off of that video they put so much hard work into. But as I was saying, at least with a basic copyright claim, you don't really have to worry about finding yourself in the proverbial doghouse or uh, your channel status being affected. A copyright strike is more serious. I believe with a copyright strike, the video gets taken down entirely. And as I was saying earlier, if you uh, pile up three of those, three strikes and you're out, I think they can actually just shut down your whole channel. And I believe the offended party, you know, has to go out of their way to initiate a, a copyright strike or a takedown or whatever. So they really have to kind of have a bug up their ass about it, <laughs> pardon my language. You know, they really have to be kind of um, uh, offended that you're using their content. And I can kind of see that if you just took someone else's content and uploaded it wholesale uh, without making some effort to make it transformative, you know, where you're commenting on it or this and that. But even then, in like a cold, calculating business sense, I always thought, you know, why try to get it taken down? Why not leave it up there and, and take advantage of this kind of exploit I was complaining about earlier, where they allow people to completely claim monetization of a video, even if it only contains a small amount of copyrighted material. 
why not just leave it up wherever it appears and just claim monetization? And hopefully you're, you know, from a business standpoint, uh, hopefully you're making some extra money off of it, unless it's on a really, really controversial channel that you don't want to be associated with whatsoever. But in my case, yeah, 12 minutes in, I'm just getting to this. What happened was uh, I had a video that I published. Um, wow. It could have been in between one to three years ago, the way time flies. It was just kind of this fun episode where I was responding to this uh, clip where Richard Dawkins and Brandon Flowers, the, the lead singer from The Killers, appear on the same Scandinavian talk show. And it was just a really wild appearance. And it was fun for me because I'm a big Richard Dawkins fan. And I'm also kind of a fan of the Killers. I'm not like a fanatical devotee of the Killers, but I like a lot of their songs. And it kind of weirded me out when I first learned that Brandon Flowers uh, was a Mormon. I'm like, really? Because I knew about some of his influences, how he was influenced by like Joy Division and New Order and a lot of these kind of punk and alterno bands. And it, it just and just listening to his lyrics and things like that, I never would have imagined that he was a Mormon. And we're not just talking, you know, that he was raised Mormon. He's a practicing Mormon. And so just Richard Dawkins shows no quarter. You know, he just looks him dead in the eye and just goes after religion as a whole and Mormonism specifically. And Brandon Flowers looks like he's on the edge of tears. You know, he just looks really uncomfortable sitting there while Dawkins rips into him. And so I made a kind of response video at regular intervals here and there throughout the video clip. I chimed in and gave my two cents repeatedly. There was a lot of commentary. There was a lot of pausing and speaking. Uh, enough that people who just wanted to watch the damn video were probably like they always are. Who's this weirdo who keeps chiming in? So despite the fact that to me, the video definitely fell safely within the boundaries of fair use, the owner to the rights of the content obviously didn't think so. And the name listed in the complaint looks like the name of some Scandinavian business. So it was probably the people behind the TV company or the show. Why they should care that some guy in America decided to make a commentary video based on one segment from one episode of their show, I don't know. It might have to do with new features, which YouTube has been implementing, which makes it easier for copyright owners to identify matching content. At the end of the day, I'm not too bothered by it. I don't think I deserve the strike. I think, as I was saying, it constitutes fair use. But hey, it does feature material or footage from one of their shows. And if they don't want the episode up there, I get it. Uh, it's not a battle I feel motivated to engage in. But since we're on the subject of YouTube, I guess we might as well keep going. Another adpocalypse has begun. And if you're someone who just tends to listen to audio podcasts, uh, you haven't spent a lot of time, fortunately for you, down the YouTube rabbit hole, you might not be uh, familiar with the term adpocalypse. So the first quote-unquote adpocalypse came maybe a couple years back or so. Um, it's a term, I think, coined by... Uh, YouTube content creators that refers to these kind of changes implemented by YouTube that caused a sudden and drastic decline in 
content creator income. I have to admit that I've never really made a lot of money off of YouTube. As I was discussing recently on the show, prior to when my channel had been temporarily demonetized, uh, I had just begun to make about 180 a month off of YouTube. Uh, I think those days are probably over for me in order to get my channel re-monetized, so to speak. I had to ditch a lot of um, popular videos I had up on my channel. And after I did that, I think there, there has been a steep decline in views and consequently in, uh, in ad revenue. So I think it's the 21st of every month that you get your payout from YouTube. And you only see a payout, I believe, if you hit the $100 um, threshold. I think I'm at like 20 bucks now, so it would surprise me if I do not get a payout this month. And that's the way it's been for me for the majority of my time on YouTube. But there are a lot of content creators who've become very successful on, on YouTube, not just fame-wise, but financially as well, who've been able to carve out a living for themselves solely on YouTube. And uh, as some people will tell you, supposedly the golden era was right before the, uh, the first adpocalypse, when if you knew what to do, you could make a fortune on YouTube off of ad revenue. And that all changed overnight once again with the first adpocalypse. So just a very brief and loose kind of synopsis of what the first adpocalypse entailed. I believe as it goes, um, supposedly, I think it was a Coca-Cola ad, you know, some kind of mainstream ad appeared on a controversial channel. It might've been like a, a white, supremacy kind of or supremacist kind of channel um a channel which i think you know was kind of kook fringe um probably relatively speaking didn't have that many subscribers or whatever uh but i think it it came to advertisers attention that this type of thing was happening here and there and advertisers got uh, justifiably concerned that their ads might be uh, playing on videos that they in no way want to be associated with, you know, like really controversial stuff. And in turn, this got YouTube or Google concerned because, of course, it's not just content creators who make money off of ad revenue. They just get a little slice of the pie. Um, the, the lion's share of the cash cow, you know, goes to Google or whatever. So they got concerned and really started to crack down on um, on who qualified for ad revenue and things like that. And kind of across the board, you know, some controversial content creators, I'd say people I like, like, you know, uh, The Amazing Atheist or The Drunken Peasants, when, yeah, they're kind of racy, raunchy, kind of controversial, but not so much so that I think they deserve to be demonetized. They were like, I, I was, my jaw kind of dropped when I finally learned that. I think, Jesus, the, the drunken peasants were making crazy money. Um, I'm trying to think exactly what it was. Because first, Cult of Dusty 
was kind of being uh, outspoken about what he claimed the drunken peasants had told him they had been making, and I didn't know if he was exaggerating or not. And then I basically heard Ben from the drunken peasants kind of confirm it. It was like 5,000, it might have been a week, something like that. We're, We're talking crazy money, something like that. And in the wake of the apocalypse, almost all that dried up. So they went from making good money that they could all live on from YouTube to uh, basically nothing almost overnight. Then less controversial figures, people who I think really did, did not deserve to get affected at all. Like, um, uh, you know, other, you know, like other uh, content creators are like, like uh, David Pakman and Kyle Kalinske uh, from Secular Talk. These people who are more just like standard uh, left-wing political pundits, um, they're not really saying anything too racy or controversial. Even they were getting hit really hard. Um, I think David Pakman was just recently talking about how he had had a conversation with Kyle Kalinske in the wake of the first apocalypse where one morning they got up. David Pakman made like 19, he went from making good money, like I think 30% of his, of his income related to his show was coming from YouTube. He went from making good money to waking up one morning and seeing he had only made 35 cents. And Kyle Kalinske said, no, I think David Pakman only made 19 cents. And Kyle Kalinske said, yeah, I only made 35 cents. And they were both trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And so I think what at least one of the problems was is that a lot of the decision-making, so to speak, was being done by algorithms. So if you were talking about a controversial topic, even though you were denouncing it, uh, you, you would sometimes, you know, your video would get demonetized. So people like Kyle Kalinske or David Pakman are obviously going to be denouncing things like anti-Semitism and, uh, you know, right-wing fascism and and things like that. But obviously to denounce it, they still have to talk about it. And so the algorithm wasn't really distinguishing between who is supporting these ugly controversial ideas and who is denouncing them. It was just kind of punishing or demonetizing people across the board. And to be honest with you, I really can't recall what the heck the second iteration or installment of the Adpocalypse was. So I'll just skip right to Adpocalypse 3. And I think it's also being referred to as the Vox Adpocalypse or something like that. And it's being called that because at the heart of it is this drama that went down between Steven Crowder and uh, a, a journalist or writer for Vox, who happens to be both uh, Latino and gay, I believe. I forget his uh, his name. His last name might be Meza, something like that. I'll try to quickly look it up. Yeah, Carlos Maza or Meza, M-A-Z-A. So I guess for a while, he and Steven Crowder were going back and forth. And uh, if you're not familiar with Steven Crowder, it's weird because my... Um, 
my I feel like my audience is mostly probably left leaning, like like myself. But I know uh, there there is some of my audience who probably is you know center, maybe leaning right a little. Um, so I never necessarily know how they're going to react if I go after uh, a public figure who's on the right. But since day one, I've always said that. Uh, or at least insinuated that, you know, this podcast is supposed to be about intellectual honesty and me saying what I think and feel without censoring myself. Well, at the same time, trying to be relatively respectful, unless uh, we're talking about Alan Combs, apparently, you know. And so to be honest, I do not care for Steven Crowder. I think only once did I see see Steven Crowder do anything that kind of made me laugh, and that was his Jenk Uger impression, which I thought was pretty good. And so I, I was a kind of long-term, long-time TYT or Young Turks fan. Um, I kind of became somewhat disenchanted with them. When Remember when Islam was like the, the focal point for a while? And it seemed like a lot of times they were kind of giving Islam a pass in a way that they might not with Christianity. And they started to go after Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins. So I kind of fell out of the habit of watching them around that around that time. I'd even criticized them on the show a bit. But that being said, I don't hate Cenk Uger or TYT. In fact, over the past maybe half a year, I've even been kind of getting back into the habit of listening and listening to and watching them. Uh, I feel like I'm a little bit more guarded and vigilant now, you know, um, when I'm consuming their content. But I still enjoy them sometimes, and I, I don't bear them any ill will. And uh, as annoying as maybe I find some of the new uh, panel members or whatever, um, I still agree with a lot of what they say. Uh, all that being said, I do have to admit that I did get a chuckle over Steven Crowder's impersonation of Jenk, where he's like drinking bacon grease out of a pan or whatever. But otherwise, I've never really cared for Steven Crowder, to be honest. To me, he's like a, a Fox News experiment that escaped and was given his own show. Uh, and I, I've been aware of him for a long time. I think I started to become politically aware kind of, uh, or more politically aware, sometime after 9-11. And I started out by consuming news content across the board. I would watch CNN, I would watch MSNBC, and I would watch Fox News. And I can remember back in the day when uh, Greg Gutfeld was first given, you know, Red Eye, that kind of edgy uh, middle-of-the-night comedy show that appeared on Fox News. And I actually used to enjoy that somewhat. And I think Crowder may have appeared on Red Eye. I, I forget. But I think I kind of connect the two in my mind because I, I see a similar thing. Uh, both Red Eye and Crowder were Fox's attempt to appeal to a younger demographic, trying to be, uh, you know, a little funny and edgy, etc. And I think even back in the old Fox days, Crowder would identify himself as a comedian and I never really found him all that funny, you know. Uh, I don't think that I'm necessarily a barrel of laughs. Uh, maybe sometimes my humor is a little cringy, but I don't identify as a comedian, you know. And I always disliked Fox News's kind of brand of ambush journalism. And I think they used to send Crowder out like they used to send Jesse Waters out, you know, to kind of like ambush people. 
And Jesse Waters. Now, there's a per. If I had to make a short list of public figures that I just absolutely despise, that fill me with loathing, he he would be up there. Just to me, one of the most smug, insufferable creatures I've ever had the displeasure of uh, viewing. And ideologically, I think uh, Waters and Crowder are probably both on the same page. Except that, admittedly, I think Crowder is somewhat more kind of boyish and likable. But that's not saying much when you compare him to Jesse, uh, Jesse fucking Waters. But when I look at Steven Crowder's YouTube channel, I basically just see everything I dislike about Fox News. Except, uh, you know, packaged for a uh, younger, edgier audience. And so what happened was, I actually just watched this compilation recently... I guess for a long time, Crowder had been going after Carlos Maza or Meza. Uh, and I think Meza made a compilation of, uh, of all the times or many of the times that Crowder had gone after him. And it's just clip after clip after clip of Crowder referring to him as the gay uh, Mexican uh, the lispy little queer, uh, Vox's token uh, gay atheist uh, Mexican or whatever. And Crowder uses the word queer liberally. And this is funny because I'm a big Joe Rogan fan and a big David Pakman fan. And I had recently watched Pakman's appearance on Rogan. That had been something I'd been looking forward to for a long time. And I found myself agreeing with both of them for the most part. But there was one moment where I did find myself kind of siding more with Pac-Man and kind of uh, Rogan's approach was kind of rubbing me the wrong way. And they were talking about this very issue. They were talking about uh, Carlos Meza or Maza versus Steven Crowder. And Crow and uh, Rogan rather, you could just kind of hear it in his voice or in the way he chose his words or whatever. Um, that he seemed to be more sympathetic towards Crowder and that he uh, was kind of erring on Crowder's side or he felt bad like Crowder didn't deserve to get demonetized. That um, he tried to couch it, you know, by saying that, yeah, he didn't, didn't think it was nice to refer to someone as a, a lispy queer, but that it was still a freedom of speech issue that maybe Crowder was getting a raw deal. That seemed to be the way or the angle that Rogan was coming from. Well, at the same time, earlier in the conversation, or maybe it was later in the conversation, Rogan seemed to kind of contradict himself by um, being sympathetic towards Dave Rubin and not liking the way that Sam Cedar and others tended to go after Dave Rubin in part, you know, or jokingly um, for what is uh, Dave Rubin's seeming intellectual deficit or something. And that was a weird thing. And that was something other people pointed out that seemed like Joe Rogan was sympathizing with Dave Rubin and even trying to stick up for Dave Rubin a little by kind of insinuating that's not nice to pick on Dave Rubin for being stupid. Well, at the end of the day, I don't think anyone's, people aren't trying to say that Dave Rubin is necessarily 
stupid or literally, you know, it suffers from some cognitive dis- intellectual disability. It's it's more that um, maybe his take on various issues seem or seems to lack depth. Or uh, a lot of people on the left kind of view him as a sellout. So my take on Dave Rubin, I remember I mentioned this earlier in the show. Back when I started to part ways with TYT a little because I didn't really didn't necessarily see eye to eye with them on their approach to Islam and things like that. And on the way they were starting to go after high profile atheists like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. I remember Dave Rubin and seeing him starting to become kind of disaffected. And I remember witnessing the kind of deterioration of his relationship with TYT. And I remember that period where he went out on his own. And I was actually pretty pro Dave Rubin at the beginning. And I actually remember, I've cited this a few times on the show there was this one moment that I'll never forget. I was This was before Dave Rubin left, but short, shortly before. He, Jimmy Dore, and Ben Mankiewicz, who I usually like Ben Mankiewicz, but I definitely wasn't on Team Mankiewicz in this exchange. They were talking about uh, Charlie Hebdo. Did that sound too pretentious? I probably, I probably managed to butcher it and sound pretentious at the same time. Or Charlie Hebdo. You remember those cartoons? The controversial um, Muhammad cartoons? And as uh, referring to myself as an artist sounds pretentious too. But you know, it's a graphic design degree. I've been drawing since I was a kid. As someone who believes strongly in freedom of expression, free speech... Uh, someone who is an artist of sorts and uh, an atheist uh, who believes everyone should be free to lampoon religion. I've, I was always staunchly behind uh, the side uh, of the Charlie Hebdo artist. I remember um, Jimmy Dore and Dave Rubin were also supporting the Charlie Hebdo artist. And Ben Mankiewicz was having like a shit fit talking about how innocent Muslims around the world don't deserve to have their religion or their prophet demeaned like this and having their face, you know, having this crap rubbed in their face and all this stuff. And this was the kind of attitude that made me kind of drift away from TYT for a while and made me kind of sympathetic to Dave Rubin and happily kind of follow as he branched out on his own. My take on Dave Rubin now is actually significantly different. At the end of the day, I don't know what's in the guy's heart and head. I'm not a mind reader. Is it fair to call him a sellout? I don't know. Because once again, that depends on what he actually believes. And I don't know. I'm not inside his heart or head. It depends on how sincere he is in his professed political worldview. And at the end of the day, probably only he knows the answer to that. But I do know, as a left-leaning atheist type, uh, I don't really get any joy out of watching his show anymore. I don't really get any intellectual stimulation from watching it. All I see is basically him sucking off the same circle or rotation of figures over and over again. How many fucking times can I watch Ben Shapiro, one of the Weinsteins, or Jordan Peterson bitch about how bad political correctness is? You know, 
I myself have issues with political correctness, thought and speech policing, all this Orwellian newspeak kind of stuff. And I've expressed those opinions a lot on the show. But what good does it do me to listen to the same people making the same points over and over again, especially when they're in bed with uh, people that, not because of any party allegiance or alliance, I consider myself to be a left-leaning independent. I don't trust most politicians on either side of the aisle as far as I can throw them. But people I would otherwise consider because of their worldview, kind of enemies is a strong word, but kind of, you know, diametrically opposed to myself. What good does it do me to listen to these people making the same points over and over again? I agree that there's factions on the left who take political correctness too far, but, you know, what good does it do me to listen to people who are in bed with the right try to hammer the same point, uh, you know, away ad nauseum? But anyway, back to Crowder. <laughs> after that rant. So, yeah, Carlos Maza or Meza, I don't know this guy from a hole in the wall, and I always wonder about that expression. Is that some kind of weird uh, glory hole reference? Anyway, yeah, I, don't, I really don't know anything about that guy. I barely know anything about Vox. This is all new to me. But supposedly he and Crowder were going back and forth, uh, I think at first, you know, he was kind of asking YouTube to do something about the guy, but they didn't really do too much. And then he released this kind of tweet storm with, uh, you know, the, this kind of montage of all the, the times uh, Crowder's gone after him on the basis of his sexuality, etc. And finally, YouTube decided to demonetize Crowder. So basically the same thing that happened to me not long ago, but just for different reasons. Remember, I received that kind of generic form letter uh, from YouTube informing me that I was no longer eligible for monetization or whatever. In my case, and it was similar with a lot of other content creators, what they didn't like about my channel was that some of my most popular videos were kind of what they referred to as reuse content. And I wasn't monetizing like these Bill Maher clips and stuff that I had up, but I think they drew eyeballs. So people would come to my channel, uh, usually drawn by, you know, my uh, Bill Maher or Hitchens clips and things like that. And then I think some of my other videos would also get uh, views or some of my other videos were more likely to get recommended or show up in other people's feeds. And so... In order, in an attempt to get my channel eligible for monetization again, I jettisoned a lot of those uh, little clips, those atheist debate clips, Bill Maher clips, stuff like that. And I noticed just a decline in viewership in general, which I was afraid of. Because I think where a lot of the money was coming from was from my Baphomet documentary, my St. Patrick documentary, things like that, which I think were just getting more eyeballs or whatever. And now, I've, like I was saying, I've just seen a drop-off. But in the case of Crowder, it was, uh, the complaint had something to do with, you know, hate speech or that kind of thing. And uh, other big content creators have been targeted as well, like uh, Deep Fat Fried got completely, their whole channel got demonetized too for the same reasons. And Deep Fat Fried, that's the podcast The Amazing Atheist started with his brother and best friend after they left uh, The Drunken Peasants. And so Deep Fat Fried 
does kind of showcase TJ's infamous kind of demeanor and kind of uh, inappropriate humor, etc. So it is very caustic, kind of bombastic, over the top. Um, but at the same time, underneath that, underneath the vitriol and everything, I actually think it's a great educational show. They'll take a different subject every main episode and and go really in depth, you know, go really deep into it. So one episode, it might be uh, as crazy as it sounds. It might be like Brex breakfast cereal. I almost said Brexit cereal. And they'll go into the history of breakfast cereal, how it came about, um, how it changed over the years, this and that. And at the same time, they kind of inappropriately joke as they go along, but you're also learning. And then another episode, that, like they did a whole episode on octopuses, or I believe octopi is actually incorrect, but I still, my instinct is to say octopi. Uh, they did a whole episode on the Black Plague. I think they did an episode on um, L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, just things like Just things like that. And even though the humor is inappropriate, et cetera, you actually do learn um, about these subjects. I think it's a great show. And they got demonetized. And the same thing is happening to a lot of other high-profile content creators, too. And I guess whether or not you think uh, the given content creator, quote-unquote, deserves it, it maybe it's a, a case by case thing, and it's up to the eye of the beholder. But uh, at the end of the day, whether you think they deserve it or not, it's happening. It's happening to a lot of content creators. And I actually almost forgot, there's a, a pretty well-known content creator that I'm friendly with, uh, this guy named Pimp Monk. I'm actually friends with him on Facebook. And uh, I, I've been on his live, not as a guest, just as a viewer, you know. Uh, I've I've been watching him when he's been doing live streams before and I've actually uh I don't have a lot of money to give but I've donated to him and things like that and uh Pimp Monk his whole channel got demonetized uh recently as well and I first found out about Pimp Monk through uh the, watching the Drunken Peasants and I think actually he did invite me on one time I think I donated to him or I was talking in the chat and he actually asked if I wanted to be a guest because he saw that, you know, I have a small following by YouTube terms, but decent enough to maybe merit having me on as a guest. And, um, but he only, but usually has guests on in the morning. He does his live show in the morning. So it doesn't, it didn't really work out or it hasn't yet. And kind of like TJ, Pimp Monk has what some people might deem an inappropriate sense of humor and can be kind of over the top and in your face, etc. Uh, but underneath it, I think like TJ, you know, he has a good heart and um, he just kind of minds his own business, does his own thing in his own corner of the internet, has uh, other content creators on and uh, most of the money that he manages to raise goes to uh, dealing with his own health problems or the health problems of his aging parents. And now his whole channel is demonetized. And another scary thing that's been going on as a consequence of all this is that I was mentioning earlier how in Adpocalypse Part 1 or whatever, you know, um, the algorithm had trouble distinguishing between 
who was promoting and who was denouncing, you know, a controversial topic or, or viewpoint or whatever. And the same thing is happening again. And maybe this partly was Adpocalypse 2, but YouTube started to take action against conspiracy theory videos and stuff like that. And now people who are denouncing conspiracy theories like flat earthers and uh, stuff like that and, you know, school shooting conspiracies and this people who are trying to debunk all that stuff are being penalized because the algorithm can't tell the difference between them and the people promoting these crazy theories. And that actually happened to the drunken peasants. The drunken peasants did a video about three or four years ago just totally ripping um, a new hole into this guy who just this horrible human being who was advocating um, Sandy Hook conspiracy theories and just kind of stomping all over the feelings of Sandy Hook parents and basically saying the only evidence he'd accept was basically like the corpse of a, of a dead child victim or whatever. Um, just a disgusting, detestable human being. And the drunken peasants was actually lampooning, mocking, and denouncing this guy. And they had a video just recently yanked off of YouTube because the stupid algorithm can't tell the difference between someone, like I said, someone who's denouncing that crap and someone who's pushing that crap. And it would actually be interesting to try to find out what's going on with the non sequitur show. Uh, I love the non sequitur show and they do a, a great job of kind of exposing flat earthers and stuff like that. And, and probably like, I don't know if this is a fair estimation, but maybe like 70% of their videos have to do with, you know, taking on flat earthers. And I wonder if they've suffered at all because YouTube is trying to make it harder for conspiracy videos to um, be uh, found uh, through the algorithm or whatever. So I wonder if their videos are now, by default, becoming harder to discover as well. All right, but I think I'm going to call it a wrap. I'm tired, and man, is it hot in this room I'm uh, recording in. So, as always, thanks for listening, everyone. You know the drill. Please like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you want to support the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekanddoubt. Uh, or you can um, go to Podbean. That's where I host the feed for the show. Go, you know, search for The Week in Doubt. Go to the bottom of the Podbean page and you should find a PayPal widget. There's all that alliteration. All right, brothers and sisters, uh, thanks for listening and until next week.